The following Dharma talk was given by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Sangha. It's nice to have you all here today. It's a nice, small, cozy group. Um, I wanted to start with a favorite chant of mine I do each day. And now, for as long as space endures and sentient beings exist, may we too remain in this world to relieve the suffering of all beings. For as long as space endures and sentient beings exist, may we too remain in this world to relieve the suffering of all beings. It's from Shantideva, Shantideva's way of the Bodhisattva. And I'll tell you a little bit about this character from Tibet um, centuries ago and how relevant I feel his teachings are for us today in this world and with the, the um, stress and uh, as Joanna Macy would, would say, as carrying the despair, the disheartened feelings that we have in our body and in our mind. I'd like to start off with what we're studying this ongo, so you can kind of feel who we are in this world. We're studying the moon. This is by a 12th century Zen master, Dogen. And the, a particular line we're working with is, Shakyamuni Buddha said, Buddha's true Dharma body, as it is, is open sky. Your true Dharma body, my true Dharma body, as it is, is open sky. In response to things, forms appear. Thus is the moon in water. The thusness of thus is the moon in water is the moon in water. It is water thusness, moon thusness, thusness within, within thusness. Thus does not mean like something. Thus means exactly, just as things are exactly. Buddha's true Dharma body is the as it is of open sky. This open sky is the as it is of Buddha's true Dharma body. Because it is Buddha's true Dharma body, the entire earth, the entire universe, all phenomena, everything we look at, all appearances, are open sky. As he said, in response to things, in response to things, forms appear. Hundreds of grasses and myriad forms, each appearing as it is, are nothing but Buddha's true Dharma body. Well, that's a lot there. 
So essentially, there have to be conditions for the moon to take form. There are conditions that make us take form. We are this open sky, but we all know there's causes and conditions that have us take this form. Another way of looking at this or calling this true Dharma body is the pure Dharmakaya, the body of emptiness. This is one side, right? Emptiness. Empty of what? Empty of any fixed inherent characteristics, open sky. So here we are. I'm here. But my true nature, your true nature, is this open sky. Can't even name it. Can't even measure it. That's one side of us, right? This absolute nature. It's when you let go of a thought and there's that gap between the next thought or the breath, there's like, there's a space there. And that, as you sit, that grows, that grows, that space, that open space. So I wanted to read um, another way of looking at this true Dharma body by Thanissara Bhikkhu. I like him. He's a Theravadan monk who explains things very clearly And he has a sense of humor, which I really like. (laughs) He says, Emptiness is a mode of perception, a way of looking at experience. It adds nothing to and takes nothing away from the raw data of physical and mental events. You look at events in the mind and the senses with no thought of whether there's anything lying behind them. Very direct. Smell, taste, touch, direct encounter, direct contact, pure, before we do anything with it, right? Whether we like it or we don't like it or it remind that's adding the more. This mode is called emptiness because it is empty of the presuppositions we usually add to experience in order to make sense of it. The stories and the worldviews we fashion to explain who we are and the world we live in. Although these stories and views have their uses, have their uses, the Buddha found that the questions they raise of our true identity and the reality of the world outside pull attention away from a direct experience of how events influence one another in the immediate present. Causes and conditions in the immediate present. You're here, I'm here, this is our immediate present. You're having sensations, aliveness, very direct, even not even thinking. Heart's beating, breath is going in and out. Thus, they get in the way when we try to understand and solve the problem of suffering. So, and then there's this world we're in, this relative world. So we have this absolute body, and then the relative world is where suffering happens, because the relative world is relational. We start 
we have relationships. We start relating. There's things. But at the basis of those things, there's no thingness. And those two things are mutually arising. You can't take them apart. It's like I give you a quarter. I can't separate heads from tails. I give you a form. I give you emptiness. It's mutually arising. That's the percept. That's what we begin to see. And it can't be a, an idea. It starts as a concept, perhaps. But I know we all know this because that's who we are. So deep down, that's what, what's awakened in us. And we get clearer and clearer about that nature of ourselves. That's seeing your true nature, your true Dharma body. And so when we see that way, it helps us as a fledgling bodhisattva who is one who wants to stay in the world for as long as space endures. May I continue to remain to relieve the suffering, both of ourself and of others. Because we almost can't help it. We start to see we're, not, we're, the, we're of the same thing. My teacher used to say, you and I are the same thing, but I'm not you and you're not me. And both of that is arising simultaneously. So it's a teaching that could be misunderstood, like, oh, everything's empty, nothing matters. No, it, it matters what, those, what influences those causes and conditions to have a form appear. And it doesn't mean that some forms are um, caustic or um, are not um, in harmony, cause a lot of pain. We know this. So when Shantideva speaks of loving our enemies, that's a hard pill to swallow. And really what he's saying is we can not hate the person, but the actions is all that is, is remaining, how we act. And that we cannot, we, there's things that we cannot agree with and not accept. It's a bit different. So may I continue to likewise remain is the profession of a bodhisattva. And, you know, we're in a process. We're fledgling bodhisattvas. I am. I still hurt people. Um, I, my, I ha- we may have aspirations like, yeah, I want to do good. I want to practice good. I want to actualize good for others. We have that aspiration in us. And also, we're still learning how to do that, right? We're bodhisattvas awakening. And this is why we need a path of peace. We need practices that keep teaching us who we are so we can unlearn some of the things that we've learned that are just not in accord with how things are. Right? So we'll keep repeating some of the things we do. And if we go like, oh God, I don't, I didn't want to do that. That's good news. 
because some moral aspect is very alive. And so we can, we can shift. We can learn practices so that we can see our reactivities and respond better out of the way we want to live. And we have to, we've got a lot of practice. That's why we've got each other. That's why we've got relationships, right? Boy, do they help us practice, huh? Bodhisattvas in disguise all over. How do we burn with love in a world we can't fix? How do we burn in a world that's the fire in the lotus? Burning in a world. The lotus in the fire, the other way. We are the lotus in the fire. We're... How do we burn with the love we want to give in the fire of this world when so much could make us feel hardened in our heart? Um, and I think it's important to... We, I was in the uh, Ongo Intensive where we were looking at Joanna Macy's world as lover, world as self, you know, for the earth... And she was. She had this chapter on despair, and uh, I think Pema Chodron says it nicely. And then I'll go back to uh, Joanna as of how we have to feel things. And really, I think this despair or disheartenment, despair is different from grief. So grief is a loss has happened. We grieve because we we have loss. Right? But despair is we don't know the results. There's something going on, and it doesn't look so great sometimes, and we don't know. There's uncertainty. Because loss we know. Something happened. We've lost it. But despair is more, more not knowing in that uncertainty. So Pema, of course, she titles her book Getting Comfortable with Uncertainty um, because that is what our life is. She wrote, Those who train wholeheartedly in awakening bodhicitta, which, I'll, which is the awakened heart-mind, that attitude, that aspiration, are called bodhisattvas who enter challenging situations in order to alleviate suffering. They are willing to cut through personal reactivity and self-deception. They are dedicated to uncovering the basic, undistorted energy of the bodhicitta, of our awakened heart-mind. Devoted, dedicated to uncovering that undistorted aspiration, if you will, to awaken our heart and mind. That's what our practice might bring us to. They, they who never know what will happen next. We can try to control the uncontrollable by looking for security and predictability, always hoping to be comfortable and safe. But in truth, we never avoid uncertainty. We sit and find our very intellectual strategies, even though they... And, and go to our strategies, even though they are creating distance. 
So it takes time to trust. This takes time. This takes time. She says, wherever we are, we can train. Sitting, standing, walking, lying down, meditation, cultivating uh, qualities of loving kindness, of the paramitas, giving, um, joyful effort, loving kindness, equanimity, non-harming. With the help of these practices, she says, we find the tenderness of bodhicitta in sorrow and in gratitude behind the hardness of rage and the shakiness of fear. In loneliness, as well as in kindness, we can uncover, she calls, the soft spot, which is our basic goodness. But bodhicitta training offers no promise of happy endings. Rather, this I, who wants to find security, who wants something to hold on to, will finally learn to grow up. The root of suffering is resisting the certainty that no matter what, the circumstances, uncertainty is all we truly have. So as I said, chitta means mind, also heart, heart and mind are one, and bodhi is awake or completely open. So the spontaneous wish that we don't want to suffer or others to suffer. And we feel the pain of that that we share with others. It brings us together. And it's not something we either have or we don't have, or something we need to acquire. It's a way of relating to the mind and the world based on seeing the nature of things in an unconfused way, seeing the true Dharma body in the relative world, coming to see that, what's true about what we're seeing in form, in appearance. The illusion of an inherently fixed self in a thing or a person, nothing affixed about it. One who has this motivation is you, (laughs) a bodhisattva. Its nature is to test what we can be, the greatest unfoldment of our human potential. And she speaks about how this takes courage. It takes courage to relate to our heart and mind in such a way. Oh boy, does it. Because she said, never underestimate how fast we want to bolt. Never underestimate the inclination to bolt. (laughs) So that's why we need courage. So it's so critical to keep having teachings because that, that, that wanting to bolt when things get, which they always will, is, in, is that inclination. We need something to cut through it, and that's our, our courage. I remember I was in a session once, and I was just, I had it. I was just like, I'm, I just don't want to stay here. It was a, this is the silent, week-long silent intensive. This was early in my practice. 
I just felt like my teacher was failing me. Everything, the tra- everything was failing. Of course, I was blaming everything. What was I doing? I don't know. So Kinhin came, walking meditation. And I went to the gate at the front of the monastery, <laughs> deciding if I would step over and leave or come back in. And my teacher happened to be looking out the window. And he yelled out to me, you can go, but there's nowhere to go. And I was just like, oh my god, I can't get away from anything here. So of course, I really didn't want to, but I was just hurting terribly, terribly. And I didn't know which was more bearable, to sit there with it or to run, to bolt. Because you take it all with you. So I marched back in, and of course, it turned around as I sat more and, you know, began to feel, began to just feel. And that's the hardest thing, is to feel. She says, Joanna Macy, the refusal to feel takes a heavy toll. The refusal to feel takes a heavy toll. So, it's enough to make us want to go on retreat, isn't it? (laughs) Some kind of retreat. And Zazen allows us to stay, to calm down, to come to our senses, not be driven by them like a puppet, not let our senses take over, right? To tame them, to quiet them down, to see them. My teacher used to be in the Navy, Daito Roshi, and he had a boatswain's pipe. Do you know those pipes? Where they go, which means all hands on deck. Well, he used to use that with us. <laughs> he used to play it in the monastery. And we used to be, everyone used to roll their eyes like, oh my God, you can take them out of the Navy, but it's still in them. But it meant all hands on deck, and I feel like this is the situation now on the planet. All hands on deck. 10,000 hands and arms on deck. And we know, I think, we'd have to be living in a deep fog not to be aware of how world events are pushing us deeper and deeper into levels of uncertainty. It seems sometimes there's no end in sight whether we admit it or not, or choose to worry about it or ignore it, it's what's happening. And our our life is fragile, always has been. Oops, there it is. The reason why we get so amped up too today is because there's so, we're bombarded with communication, signals of distress all the time. Anytime we want it, it's on the feed, these signals of distress. So no wonder, this ha- it has never been before that we're so much more amped up. And this was even probably her chapter in this was before we had um, maybe I, uh, flip phones. I don't know when they started, but not, not iPhones or, or everything in our ears and all that. 
So, <clears throat> Shantideva offers us a way. And it's what he needed to hear himself ten cent- uh, in the 10th century, in the 8th century. He contact this wisdom to heal and transform systems that, of harm within ourselves and externally but first within ourselves, and then extend that to our communities. In here is the system of harm. And when I remember when I entered practice and I got beginning instruction from uh, Shugen Roshi, when he said, um, Buddha said his first teaching on the noble truth is life suffers. I was like, hallelujah. Somebody just like so directly just said what I was always feeling and not like bemoaning it or like it was a life suffers. It was such a relief. I don't know about for you, but I was, nobody had said that in my whole life up to when I, until I entered the monastery. I, I hadn't even come across it just that directly. And then why the causes the causes and conditions, that we can actually end it. We can put an end to suffering and how to do that, a path. It doesn't mean we don't feel pain, obviously, or still suffer, but we understand it much more clearly. And he states in the beginning verse, I like his humility, which is part of the tradition, What I have to say has been said before, and I am destitute of learning and skill of skill with words. I therefore have no thought that this might be of benefit to others. I wrote this only to sustain my understanding. I kind of resonated with that giving a talk. I just want to sustain my own understanding. I want to share it with you and your understanding together. So he's invoking humility. He expresses a clear understanding of the danger of arrogance, like he has something that's going to help you. He knows that if the Buddha were sitting in front of him, it would do him no good if his mind was filled with pride. He's not expressing low self-esteem when he says destitute of learning and skill with words. He's just not committed to getting trapped in limited identities and humble enough of knowing where he gets stuck and intelligent enough to realize he has a path, a way to free himself. So the... um, Oh, incidentally, I was, I, just as before I turn this page over, speaking of, of the courage that it takes, which he's displaying. This character for courage is standing in tall, wild grasses. Those are the two characters for courage, that we're standing in tall, wild grasses, which I think that is how courage is. Pema says, uncertainty is a loss of the comfortable, 
familiar, the known. The self we call I is comprised solely of knowns, of fixed points of certainty. That is why we continually try to prop the self up. I'm okay. Tell me I'm okay. I'm right. Tell me I'm right. You're wrong. So I can be right. (laughs) All the propping up. The I, the me, the propping up of the fixed, the settled, the known, the dependable. But nowhere might one live free from sooner laying be later be overcome by the not known. So in the beginning of the uh, way of the Bodhisattva, it's divided into ten chapters. And it's based on a verse by uh, another great master, Nagarjuna. He says, May Bodhicitta, this heart-mind of openness, precious and sublime, arise where it has not yet come to be, and where it has arisen, may it not decline, but grow and flourish ever more and more. So, he is speaking in here of, may this bodhicitta arise in us, this aspiration to open our heart and mind, and then if it has, we need to nuture it, right? We, it doesn't just open and stay open. We've got to keep nurturing ourselves so it'll flourish more and more. And that's why we have practices. And I often wondered how these, this first glimmer of bodhicitta came, comes about, like in you. How did you, maybe it hasn't arisen, but this glimmer of like wanting to open your heart and mind. How do any of us go from being completely self-absorbed to um, uh, in, in samsara and confusion, not knowing who we are, to getting this, to connecting with even a glimpse of the longing of a vaster perspective, feeling like there's something vaster. Where does that, when does that glimmer happen? It's so interesting how that first glimmer comes. Shanti Davis' core embodiment is this heartfelt yearning to free himself, oneself, from the pain of ignorance and habitual patterns in order to help others do the same. That's the main point of his. And uh, Pema says, bodhicitta is sort of a mission impossible. Desire to end suffering of all beings, including those we never met, as well as those we loathe. Really? So we have to nurture this inspiration. I think that's a tall order to end the suffering of all beings, including those we never met and those we loathe. Master Dogen once said, there are three things that spoil very easily before they become ripe. Fish eggs, mangoes, 
and the Buddha-seeking mind. (laughs) So the mind that wants to awake, be awake, they spoil easy, it spoils easily before it becomes ripe. That's why we have to nurture it, because we'll easily go back to our habits. And some that and I don't want to make habits seem like like this like, you know, it's just habits. It's like our like we can befriend our habits. We don't have to hate our habits. They're like showing us, they're like like they're they're offering us that feeling of like, oh, like that has given me something, but I want to redirect it. What it has given me is something uh, that's painful, and I'm used to it, but to recognize that, accept that, and then see we can shift it a bit. So let me tell you a little about this character, Shantideva, where he's coming from, that he writes this. Uh, way of the Bodhisattva. So he was born a prince in the 8th century in India. And he was the eldest son destined to inherit the throne. And in one account of the story, the night before his coronation, he was he had, a, had a dream in which Manjushri, who's the Bodhisattva of wisdom, appeared to him and told him to renounce the world and seek ultimate truth. Some of us may have dreams like that, where a bodhisattva comes in a dream or something tells us we need to seek something. And he left home immediately, giving up the throne for a spiritual path, just like the Buddha did. Um, So the prince disappeared in India and began living the life of a renunciate. And then he arrived at Nalanda University, the largest university, um, powerful university in India. I actually went there and saw the remains of Nalanda. I got a little brick. (laughs) I had some brick, a tiny piece of brick. And it attracted students from all over the Buddhist world. And he was uh, ordained as a monk and given the name Shantideva, which translates as God of Peace. And Shantideva was not apparently well-liked at Nalanda. Apparently he, he was one of those people that didn't show up for anything, never studying or coming to practice sessions. His fellow monks said that his three realizations were eating, sleeping, and shitting. And then finally, in order to teach him a lesson, They invited him to give a talk to the entire university, hoping, of course, they would embarrass him, like he hasn't been to anything. So they asked him to give this talk. Only the best students were given such an honor, and you had to sit on this throne that you had to climb up to, uh, of course, have something to say. And since Shantideva was presumed to know nothing, the monks thought he would be shamed and humiliated and just leave. They would chase him out. So he got to the throne, Shantideva, and very confidently climbed up on the throne, asked the assembled monks if they wanted to hear a traditional teaching or something they never heard before. And when they replied they wanted to hear something new, he proceeded to deliver Shantideva's way of the Bodhisattva. It's called the Bodhi Karyavanatara, 
Not only were these teachings very personal, full of useful advice and relevant to their lives, they were also poetic and fresh, it says. The content itself was not radical. In the very first verses, Shanti Davis says that everything is about to teach arrives from the lineage of the Buddha. It wasn't his subject matter that was original. It was the direct and very contemporary way he expressed his teachings and the beautiful power and truth of his words. And towards the end of his presentation, Shantideva began to teach on emptiness, what I started with. That's what he began to teach at the end. The unconditioned, inexpressible, dreamlike nature of all experience. And as he spoke, the teachings became more and more groundless. There was less and less to hold on to. And the monk's mind opened further and further. And at that point it said, Shantideva began to float. He levitated upward, upward until the monks could no longer see him and could only hear his voice. <laughs> Ready? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, perhaps this was just expresses how enraptured his audience felt. What we do know is that after Shanti Davis' discourse on emptiness, he disappeared. By then, his disappearance probably disappointed the monks, but he never returned to Lananda and remained a wandering yogi for the rest of his life. Yeah. So what I really love about Shantideva is his humility, that he's not making any ultimate statements about how we should live, what we should do. He's just giving you his experience. It's up to us. He's not telling us what to do, but rather what it's like when someone replies, just saying, just saying. And that's my hard-won experience. Hard -won experience. And I'm just saying, just offering that to you. He emphasizes that in order for the mind to become steady, we'll need to remove our mind, ourselves, from distractions, at least for short periods of time. Our solitude is a support for inner solitude. So for you to have that time, some time where you remove yourself from distractions. That's why we're here. We have to take a break from our busy lives. Even the Buddha said to the monastics, go into the forest. Monks, they don't have cell phones or bling or blinking anythings. Go to the forest so you can have solitude. No distractions. And that will help us navigate this despair, this um, never knowing what will happen next, to not go into panic and anxiety, that we can actually bring ourselves down and enter that uncertainty, feel the stability of the earth for support, just get out of our head that's spinning and creating and proliferating. That's what we can do. That's what practice, that's what we practice. And then to nurture ourselves 
with these practices of loving kindness, of giving, so we can begin to move into that experience. You know, liturgy is just speaking about our, our true body, our experience. But it takes time till, when, till we chant that and it matches what we're doing and what we experience within. It takes time. So for a while, many of us turn off to liturgy or, or we're just, I know, I used to just go somewhere else. <laughs> You know, my mouth was going, but I would be like chanting, like thinking of other things. It takes an, a kind of energy to, especially when we don't understand it yet, to stay present with the words, right? You might have felt that this morning. What am I saying? And like to just trust there. And then if we keep doing it, something begins to shift and then we start to see what we're saying is matching what we're seeing. Little by little by little, this takes time. And this not knowing part of the journey is also what makes us afraid. So it's, it's kind of a razor's edge there, that when we think we don't understand, we go into panic, we don't know. And so that's where we can calm down. It's not intellectual. Right? It's not, it, it helps. It helps to understand concepts, definitely. But the embody part, getting it in the body thoroughly, will take more time, like we know. So, chanting is a way to liturgy, experience intimacy. And intimacy means to be that very thing, to be that very thing. We make it visible. We, as we said in the beginning, we, um, in, in response to things, forms appear. Liturgy appears in response to causes and conditions. We need to hear this. A form comes. We call it liturgy. And, um, so I wanted to, um, I love to chant Bodhi, uh, Shanti Deva's way of the Bodhisattva, and I wanted to um, bring that in for us today. Um, at the end of um, her chapter, I recommend you read her World is Lover, World is Self, but her chapter on despair, I think it will help you, help you right now. Help, it's helped me tremendously. But at the end, she said... Um, Yeah, you can take that out. Let me get this last thing I want to share with Joanna said. Yeah. When we face the darkness of our time openly and together, we tap deep reserves of strength within us. So she says, despair cannot be banished by injections of optimism or summons of positive thinking. Like grief, it must be acknowledged and worked through. This means it must be named and validated as a healthy, normal, human response to situations we find ourselves in. Faced and experienced, its power can be used as the frozen defenses of the psyche thaw 
and new energies are released. So by feeling, she said, um, the weight of, of not feeling is tremendous, right? I said that. Um, yeah. Something analogous to grief work is in order. Despair work is different from grief work, and its aim is not acceptance of loss. Indeed, the loss has not yet occurred, and it is hardly to be accepted. But it's similar in the dynamics unleashed by the willingness to acknowledge, feel, and express inner pain. From my own work and that of others, I know that we can come to terms with apocalyptic anxieties in ways that are integrative and liberating, opening awareness not only to planetary distress, but also to the hope inherited in our own capacity to change. So how do we, what do we, how do you keep some kind of hope alive? Keep possibility alive. Keep possibility. Possibilities. You can predict just make space for it. Just make space for possibility. This will take time. It's active waiting. We need patience. It doesn't mean complacency. It just means compa- patience for it to be moving. It's moving. And we open to possibility that we can predict, but we just make space. She says, when we face the darkness of our time openly and together, we tap the deep reserves of strength within us. Many of us fear that confrontation with despair will bring loneliness and isolation. But on the contrary, in the letting go of old defenses, truer community is found. In the synergy of sharing comes power. In community, we can find our power and learn to trust our inner responses to our world. Okay. So, shall we try this? I thought we would... Let me see how we're doing on time. Okay. I hope your legs are okay. (laughs) So, I like to use this Shruti box because it has a very... um, Well, you'll feel it. Brings it into the body. Maybe I should do it once so you can hear the tune. And if you get it, just come in. And if you know harmonies, harmonize. Okay, if you know how to harmonize, harmonize, please. of all beings to help attain the way I offer any virtue that I have may the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away may I support the life of boundless untold beings just as does the earth enduring as space itself 
May I be a bridge, a boat, a ship, and for all to cross the water. May I become doctor, nurse, and medicine for sick beings in the world. May food and drink descend, ending thirst and hunger. May I be the nourishment that I need until everyone is healed. May I provide for the lost and destitute everything they need through the night to guide them. May this very life that I've received liberate the world. May even acts of harm help the violent to awaken. May they come to know each and every joy until free from pain. May I be life for all beings throughout the ends of space. Everything I've gained, I joyfully surrender. Every step I take, I'm moving with the world. May we come to know the promise of this life. Just as all Buddhas embrace the awakened mind, just as they embodied all Bodhisattva practices, for the sake of all I do adopt the spirit of enlightenment and will follow the way of the Bodhisattva. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.